You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Now, Michael, this is not exactly an original thought, but when you get older, the whole idea of Christmas changes a little bit, right? Like when you're a kid, you're so excited about what you're going to get, right? But when you get older, you get into that corny mentality of like, uh, you know, enjoying the holiday through everyone else's joy, if that makes sense. That's how I feel about The Last Dance with you right now, because we wait like four days to talk about it after these episodes go up. And I swear, I'm just sitting over here in anticipation. I'm laying out the cookies and the milk for Santa Claus. I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about this show. I've been talking about it all week to everybody else, but I look forward to this uh, this podcast every single week. And on that note, Michael, we've got some pretty interesting stuff to talk about with episodes five and six, because... To me, it covered arguably the best three-year stretch uh, for any athlete um, of my lifetime. When you're looking at 1991, 1992, 1993 for Michael Jordan, Mm -hmm. he beats the Lakers to get his first title. Uh, He beats the Blazers, uh, hits the six three-pointers. He goes and just dominates, uh, you know, the world. Uh, at the Barcelona Olympics, gets a gold medal, and then he comes back and beats Charles Barkley to complete the three-peat and do something that Magic and Larry had never done in NBA history. So as you're taking all of that in, and they and they discuss some of that on-court stuff, but they also went into um, you know some of his marketing. Uh, they also went into uh, his gambling habit. They also went into uh, his you know political stances at various points um, or lack thereof. So they covered a lot of ground in these two hours. I was just curious off the top, what stood out to you, Michael? What was your biggest takeaway from those, uh, you know, episodes five and six? So, I mean, I continue to really enjoy The Last Dance. I found five and six to be both exhilarating and, I guess, anticlimactic. I mean, the the on-court highlights from what was probably his peak as a player felt almost like unimportant compared to the gambling revelations and the moments of quote-unquote self-reflection that he had. Um, I mean, I love the Dream Team stuff. Uh, In it, you know, the closest he's ever come to admitting that he's the reason Isaiah Thomas did not qualify for the team I thought was fascinating. Um, I loved, 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 loved the 98 All-Star locker room banter where he's talking about Kobe sitting next to Tim Hardaway and then you know, Larry's Larry Bird's the coach, and Magic Johnson comes into the locker room, and and those three are kind of cracking each other up. Like inject that footage directly into my veins, twenty four seven. I'm here for it. But Ben, like the more I watch this documentary, the more I notice what isn't there. Um, you know, there's like no wife, there's no children. The Snow White Mansion where he's interviewed looks so cold, even though it's in South Florida. And like honestly. I would have loved an entire episode that was strictly about loneliness and isolation and getting Jordan to open up about that. I mean, it's touched upon a little bit with the footage of him lounging in the hotel and being shepherded from one event to another. But like, I just wanted more of that. And I'll close with this. Like, 
there's this meta twist of fate at play that I'm kind of sensing. And, you know, like segments of the past two episodes cover how the media treated Jordan and, you know, they that this theme of them building him up and then tearing him down with endorsements, winning the Be Like Mike commercial, etc. But then like, Meanwhile, in the in the in the here in the real world, like on our current timeline, we're starting to see the beginning of a backlash. Um, like notable critiques from someone like the documentarian uh, Ken Burns, who recently attacked the Last Dance's credibility, and it, it's like it's it's not the same exact thing as Jordan in the early '90s, but it's almost like the Last Dance was built up by the media and is about to be torn down. Um, do you kind of agree with what I'm saying, or acknowledge the? the negative commentary you might have heard or read about the doc so far? Well, I think that's part of the fun, right? As everyone wants to get in on the action, and so there's always going to be people who are excited about it. I think that the, the key part of the hype cycle, and I, I contributed to it, mm-hmm. was the idea that this is an important piece of work. Like, they're getting a lot of very honest commentary from a guy who doesn't talk a lot. Now, the, you have to acknowledge up front, and this is what Ken Burns was upset about, is that if he's involved in it, if it's athlete-generated content then you have to treat that as uh, an art form differently than an independent project. So I think that's completely valid criticism. I think there's a lot of things to nitpick at Jordan himself as a person. I thought, uh, you know, his answers on the politics stuff were very underwhelming. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you mentioned the word like self-reflection or introspection. He's going to get into that a little bit in some future episodes, but I didn't think he looked very hard or very deep uh, in these episodes (laughs) at, at at all whatsoever. Um, the family stuff, you're you're completely right on. I thought they did a decent job of capturing some of the loneliness that he was dealing with without, you know, turning him. They didn't want to make him into this like pitiable subject, right? Because I think that ultimately, like Jordan's myth is that he was this world conqueror, and mm-hmm. if you lean too hard on the like, oh, woe is me, poor guy, um, you know, that's that's kind of just inconsistent. Um, but. I wonder, did he need to have a lie detector on for some of these interviews, like the Isaiah Thomas interview that you mentioned, or Mm -hmm. does he have a gambling problem? Those questions, like if he was hooked up on a lie detector, does he pass uh, on those kinds of subjects or are we getting uh, different responses? Are we getting the seismograph shaking as he's telling us that I just have a competition (laughs) problem? I don't have a gambling problem. What do you think? Yeah, that was, that was like comical, like saying, uh, my wife hasn't left me to rationalize what is clearly like a degenerate gambling problem. Like, it's like, I was like, I was cracking up when he said that. I was like, uh, that doesn't mean just because your wife doesn't, didn't leave you as it's like, those are not mutually exclusive. MJ. Yeah, and, um, and let me, let me hop in on that because there is a part of it that's funny, but part of it's sad too. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I think that like, this is, not just specifically for Michael Jordan, but just like addict behavior in general, like there's going to be a lot of rationalization. There's going to be a lot of excuse making. There's going to be trying to, you know, throw out scenarios that are worse than what you're currently dealing with to make yourself justify your own behavior, right? And in his case, he's winding up getting himself into, you know, quote unquote business with some incredibly shady characters. Clearly, he regrets those relationships now after the fact, but he wasn't able to see clearly enough to make better choices at that time. That's the example, or, uh, you know, that's an example of real problem behavior. Uh, There's no way around it. I think some of the excuse making that was going on by outside observers in terms of, hey, like, look, Michael Jordan can afford it. Um, And then even what he was defending himself as saying, you know, I'm not hawking my championship rings, you know, my wife hasn't left me. Um, That's not a very sophisticated approach 
to no. w- what could potentially be an addiction. I actually think that was, you know, maybe kind of harmful or, or sending the wrong message to viewers or like letting them know like, hey, if you're not completely broke, if you haven't bankrupted yourself, then don't worry, you don't have a problem. Um, you know, that's like saying if you don't run your car into a tree and mm-hmm. kill yourself, you don't have a drinking problem, right? And I think that uh, they could have and should have handled that conversation more delicately and more intelligently. But I think that's a real sore subject for him, you know, because I think like ultimately he really does enjoy gambling. He is a very, very competitive person. Um, and yet, uh, and so I understand why he gets his guard up on that. But I do think that maybe they should have brought in like a third party expert rather than just media members to mm-hmm. kind of comment on what is and isn't problematic behavior. No, that's I, I 100% agree. I mean, the footage of him with the security guard playing the coin toss game that I, I I wish the rules of that were explained because I have I had no idea what was going on or I could, I could did you like could you even follow that that gambling game from that like unforgettable scene where they're just like he's just hanging out with these security guards chucking coins at the wall like and he's legitimately pissed off about it. I, I that was just incredible footage. Well. First of all, could we have just 10 hours of those guys hanging out? Because that seems like a pretty good show. Like that, <laughs> that actually seems like a funnier show than Seinfeld, you know, to, to call back to his uh, cameo appearance. But I think the way the game works is you throw a quarter and try to have it land as close to the wall as possible without hitting the wall, if that makes sense. Oh, and so okay. who's ever closer to the wall wins. And so like you throw yours out first and then, you know, and then the other person gets a couple tries to get it closer. I think that's the way you do it. I mean, because I'm sitting here like in quarantine, like I could use as many ways to pass the time as possible. So that's well. See, I'm that's the problem that with that the, up for me. <laughs> see, that's the problem with the media, Michael. So hypocritical. On one hand, you want to bash Jordan for gambling. On the other hand, you want him to teach you all of his favorite games, <laughs> so you and your wife can get into 3 a.m. bure and quarters tossing. I see how it is. <laughs> um. I do want to go into uh, the political stuff because I'm I'm always fascinated by uh, professional athletes and whether or not they choose to embrace um, I guess social issues and 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 speak out um, to battle injustices and discrimination and that sort of thing and so like I, like it I think it's a really highly complicated question of um, whether or not he's in the right or or whether or not we have uh, a right to judge him. I mean, he's his own man. He can do whatever he wants to do. And I can't put myself in his shoes and know exactly how stressful it was to be the most popular human being on the planet in the early 90s. But like that said, I personally wish he used is an immense, unprecedented platform to accelerate this country's never-ending fight against inequality. And, you know, he could have spoken out far more than he did um, instead of thinking that the check he sent to Harvey Gantt's campaign uh, would have solved problems or helped anything. Um, I mean, it's easy to sit here 20 years later and decide where Jordan's priorities should have been, but it, it was like disappointing at the time as well. And, you know, what's worse is him looking back now and justifying it how he did, you know, like shrugging off the Republicans wear shoes comment all these years later by declaring it a joke set on the bus with Horace Grant is like straight up embarrassing. Um, I just like, what are your general thoughts about that part of the doc? Cause that stuff is just like, 
you know, we talked at the very beginning of this about how t- it was 10 hours long. It could have been 20. It could have been 30. Like this, this particular issue, in my opinion, deserved way more introspection from Jordan and way more time on the dock to kind of elucidate what type of person that he is. Yeah. So here's a case where I'm not going to blame the documentary. I'm going to blame mm-hmm. Jordan because I'm mm-hmm. not sure he's he has answers. I don't yeah. think that there's anything there. And I think, number one, we need to be very careful about not holding him to sort of 2020 standards of right and wrong behavior, right? At the same time, I do think even back then, the idea that somebody like Jesse Helms, who was controversial, you know, repulsive to some people with extreme, uh, you know, pretty radical opinions on uh, issues of race, um, and, and everything else in, and yeah. segregation in, in North Carolina, the idea that um, you didn't feel comfortable saying anything, even trying to find a middle way, it does really, really ring hollow. Uh, and I think that his excuses after the fact are pretty empty. I think at one point he says, hey, you know, maybe you think I'm selfish. And that's where I started to feel a little bit of regret from him. And I think that that's a fair word to use here, right? I mean... Uh, he described growing up feeling the uh, you know the impact of racism uh, right. in Wilmington and, and wanting to leave that city and wanting to move forward and and he's got to realize there's a lot of other people who are feeling that same thing who are looking to him as an icon to maybe help in some way. I think the the trick is okay. So he's worried if he comes out and campaigns against Jesse Helms. He's going to get roped into every single political request possible. And I can completely understand that part. That was the most convincing part of his entire uh, monologue on politics was this idea that nothing is ever enough. And for someone in that situation, that famous, I mean, it's just constant requests on your time, constant requests on everything. And if you're not particularly passionate about politics, it's very difficult to um, engage yourself in those kinds of things and know what's actually important and what's not. So I think that his response to that was rather than like deputizing somebody in his camp to like handle these things and bring the important ones to him, it was just to shut everything out and not pay attention whatsoever. And I think that, you know, for a laser focused athlete, that's kind of like, a you know, it's a sensible approach. But at the same time, for somebody who, who has such a big role in society, it's, pro- it's, it's not good enough. It's not probably not good enough. It's just not good enough. Um, no. I also think, uh, you know, there are middle grounds that you can walk here. We've seen people do this over the years where, you know, you don't have to necessarily endorse a candidate, but you come out and say, um, I want to make sure that everybody understands it's important to vote. Or you say, uh, you know, democracy is really important. Every voice needs to be heard. Every person deserves respect, right? You can make quasi-political statements that actually aren't controversial at all that kind of telegraph to an audience about where you stand on something. So you're kind of either tacitly approving or, or tacitly disapproving of, you know, a various candidate in a race. And I think that that's the bare minimum, right? I mean, I think that's what we would have expected of someone in his position to be willing to do. And I think there's a big gap between what I'm describing and where his public position was at the time. And I do think that uh, he, he came up short. And my last point on the politics is this, Michael. I mean, the whole point of this documentary is that this guy is a ruthless competitor, right? He wants mm-hmm. to pick a fight with everyone, friends, allies, whatever it would be, you know, security guards. If there is a competition, he wants to win. And and he's completely determined to do it. As he says, winning has a price. It doesn't matter what that price is, he's willing to pay it. 
I mean, this is the important stuff. This is the big picture stuff. And now the ultimate competitor is basically punting. He's basically doing the Isaiah Thomas and walking off the court and ducking his head, right? He doesn't want any part of it. And I just actually think that it winds up being, uh, you know, a little bit inconsistent with his personality in terms of how he approaches this. And I do think there's one possible explanation. It's possible that he doesn't want to talk about politics because he knows that people won't approve of his politics. Does that make sense? I think there's kind of only two ex- explanations here. Yeah. It's, either, it's either one, he doesn't care whatsoever. He has no politics, which is possible. Two, he has some p- political beliefs, but he knows if they're public, he will be judged for them and people will turn on him, right? Those are sort of the two options here to explain his behavior. And I think we focus a lot on the first one, but it's also possible that he's just... Uh, you know, someone who, you know, is has made billions of dollars, who employs lots of people, who's, you know, ruthlessly capitalistic off the court, and who has a certain set of political values that he realizes are not uh, in line with what people would hope. And no, that I, could be a reason why he's quiet, too. Yeah, I mean, he says in the doc, he was not focused on being an activist. He was focused on honing his craft on the basketball court and being the best player that he could be. I wonder, though... Just like we can never know the answer to this, but I do wonder what the world would look like today if Michael Jordan embraced social issues in the same way as, say, um, Bill Russell or Muhammad Ali or Arthur Ashe or any of those activists who saw the bigger picture while they were playing a game and used their platform to fight racism, to fight injustices, uh, to fight inequality. I mean, it reminds me of what Mark Eversley said when he was hired as the first black GM of the Chicago Bulls last month. The quote was, uh, I am a black man who has a leadership position in a city with so many black youth. I see this as as an opportunity. Being visible is important. My position with the Bulls provides resources to help drive change. We We all can do better, and I intend to do more. So... In the eyes of many, like that right there is the whole point. It's not to win basketball games and, quote, focus on your craft. The whole idea is to use the influence that comes with professional sports, the fame, celebrity, money, to fight and be a soldier in a battle that plagues this country and help those who desperately need it. And I just wish he was more engaged. I can't do anything about the fact that he was not Um but I do wonder what the world would look like today if he was. Uh, I hear you loud and clear. I think um, to, to play devil's advocate here, you could argue even though he never took those stands, by virtue of his influence on the sport and on sporting culture in general and his role in growing the game, he gets some degree of credit for creating the platforms for other people to sure. use, right? Yeah. That's and I think that point. that part that part gets overlooked. Um, but at the same time, that's not to make an excuse for him. But it's just this idea that, like, let's say um, he had come out with controversial statements that people didn't like. There could have been a real major economic, uh, you know, impact on the NBA, on his partners, and everything else. And the, the league just might not have been as popular. I mean, there was tens of millions of people watching this guy's game towards the end of the uh, the career. Uh, you know, during the finals. It's just a crazy scope to even think about for for a sport that was just so small before he came in, uh, you know, from an audience perspective. And so I guess indirectly, he is empowering a lot of people by his presence, even if he wasn't, you know, taking advantage of his own opportunities to do it. 
Here's an off-the-wall question for you, Michael, but I'm, I'm curious. I mean, right now we live in the age of kind of a celebrity president, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think Michael Jordan could have been president if he wanted? Like, it, clearly he wasn't moved necessarily by this idea of power <laughs> and influence in, in that particular sphere. But do you think that if he had run for president, he could have won? <laughs> I guess my first question is, what year are we talking? Because that obviously would matter. Um, okay, so we we uh, we checked the Constitution, Michael. He, uh, Jordan would have had to be at least 35 <laughs> to be president, okay? So let's just say instead of his Washington Wizards DC era, he retires in 98. He doesn't get the itch to, uh, you know, come back and play basketball again. He decides instead of wanting to be president of the Wizards or president of uh, another organization, he decides, you know what? Forget about that. I want to be leader of the free world. And he launches a campaign. He gets tired of playing golf and he gets serious about it. So, you know, this is right around, let's give him like the 2004 election. How about that? What do you think? <laughs> um, I have never thought seriously about this hypothetical. Uh, you're putting me on the spot here. I would like to think that even if he did run in 2000, he could have won Florida over, uh, it, it, you know, doing something that Al Gore could not do, uh, assuming that he would run as a Democrat. Um I have no yeah. idea. This is he would have uh, <laughs> had the hang he would have the hang time chats, right? Um, well, look, here's the deal. I asked this question because it's not ludicrous. Now that what we've seen over the last 15 years, um, I think that it's also like I'm not guaranteeing that he would have won, and I think he probably would have been the worst debater of all time given his performance on the Last Dance when anything about politics came up, right? But I think that was the level of his fame and popularity at certain points of his career, right? And, and people believed in him and, and they trusted in him. And I think that's why some people take it so personally that he didn't stand up as a political leader because this was someone that people wanted to follow. It's like point us in the right direction, you know? And he just never did. And, and you contrast that. Obviously, the, the main name that comes up is LeBron James. And I think he is winding up giving a lot of people real hope, not only with his actions in terms of uh, running the school and, and doing other things along those lines. But uh, in terms of being out front, you know, picking fights with the president at times, standing up on social justice issues. Uh, he had a very forceful tweet yesterday uh, about the, the killing uh, of the man in Georgia uh, not too long ago. So, you know, I, I think that this is one situation where LeBron's going to resonate in a way that Jordan just never did. And Jordan's argument is, well, I didn't want to. And I think that our counter should be, well, why didn't you want to? Uh, maybe you should have wanted to. It's, yeah, I, I think I want to close on just saying, like, it's a responsibility. And so it's a really, like, it, it, it it's an immense weight to carry. And in comparing him to some of the athletes that I mentioned from before, like Jordan obviously came around at a time when the world was very different and you, we can't discount money and the influence of endorsements and all that, that, you know, guys like Arthur Ashe and, and Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali didn't, did, they didn't have those opportunities on the same scale that Jordan did. And that just, that fundamentally changes the calculus as, as cynical as it is to say, um, we even see it with, you know, Le you bring up LeBron, and LeBron has spoken out about a lot of wonderful things 
um, and given his viewpoints and hasn't been afraid. But, you know, most notably, notoriously, the Hong Kong China issue earlier this year, he kind of backed down from that in a way that was, I guess, uh, I don't want to call it cowardly, but it wasn't it wasn't great. And you could see what where his uh, what his motivations were behind that. Michael, don't you think that Jordan saw the Hong Kong thing from LeBron and was like, told you, this is why I never wanted to do anything. This is why I stayed out of it. This is why I didn't, you know, like, don't you think that that's kind of his approach to how he would have handled that? Just because, you know, you go into the deep water and people will come out of the woodwork and you're getting attacked by politicians on the left and right and you're being forced to choose between, you know, your lifelong relationship with Nike and you know, American ideals of freedom of speech. And that is an impossible spot to be in. And I think that's, you know, that's why Jordan just kind of opted out of it. And that's, I just think that, especially as he's gotten into retirement, I guess I just assumed that there was going to be some evolution, Michael. It really just seems like on these particular issues, he's at least presenting himself like he's just kind of trapped where he was at the peak of his fame. And there's nothing stopping him now from being this crazy, you know, philanthropist, picking a cause, you know, doing a Bill Gates and like, okay, I'm not day-to-day running Microsoft anymore. So now I'm out here trying to like, you know, create vaccines or, or, or other public health initiatives. Like, we just haven't really seen that from Jordan. And it's surprising. Maybe he's hiding it in private, just doesn't want to share it with us. But, you know, usually when people step away from their first pursuit, they move into that next stage of their career we do get to see some new love or some new igniting passion or a cause that that person cares about. And for him, as far as we could tell, his cause is just pummeling Isaiah Thomas, right? Like that like that doesn't seem like a charity work to me or doesn't no. seem like a, a motivating <laughs> factor. And that's why he does come up a little bit selfish. And that's why he comes up just a little bit on this one empty. And to be honest, I thought that this whole this whole stretch of the episodes was kind of sad. No, that's exactly right. I could not agree anymore. I mean, for those who are skeptical enough to believe that people do not change or cannot change, Michael Jordan is exhibit A, and that's just kind of a bummer to me personally. I feel you, man. All right, let's uh, let's take a little step back onto the lighter side, because I'm curious. You haven't mentioned your wife's viewing habits or her interest in this documentary, and I remember when we first started, uh, you know, maybe a month ago, you were inter- excited to watch it with her to get her sort of like, you know, uh, more casual fan type takes on things. What were her takeaways from the 91, 92, 93 stretch where, you know, Jordan's going to Atlantic City, he's going to Barcelona, he's talking trash to Magic Johnson and Monte Carlo. I mean, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> what jumped off the screen for her? She's still loving it. Um, not looking at her phone as much as she was during the first episode, so that's good. I think she's she's kind of warming up. Um, Looking I, at her phone, Michael. Do you let oh, her look at her phone in it's church? Un, it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. Oh, um, you you got to have a, have a little basket next to the couch and make her drop her phone <laughs> in it before she goes. That's crazy, man. Come on. So I will say she was, I think, dumbstruck by how much Jordan cared about Tony Kukoc and Dan Marley and even Clyde Drexler. I mean, she never heard of any of those people. And it kind of made me think about, and we had this conversation while we were watching about like this weird irony, like 
What if Jerry Krause or whoever was GM of the Bulls for that run uh, instead spent the whole time trying to be Jordan's friend and kissing his feet and complimenting him every chance he got and never giving him any slights whatsoever that he could use to fuel himself and fuel his competitive drive? Like, would Jordan have been worse or would the Bulls have been worse? Like, or would he just have still found a way regardless of his environment and the pieces around him? Because it is just so fascinating. We all, we all know this as people who love basketball about what he would do, the ticks that he would kind of manufacture. But like the fact that he, he's still talking about Dan Marley, like <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> well, let me ask you, uh, are you trying to say that Jerry Krause was the real Zen master. You know, Phil Jackson yes. gets all the credit for poking yes. and prodding. <laughs> exactly. But was Jerry Krause the real genius behind all of this? Was he the one who was saying, look, I know how to push Michael Jordan's buttons and I will not be afraid in any way to push them? Because if he did have a pushover GM, you know, a guy who would just do everything that he wanted, the roster would have looked different. Um, Jordan and Pippen are probably making way more money. It might be harder mm-hmm. to fill out the rotation. Um or is this just uh, is this like Krauss family propaganda at this point? Or like we coming off like two of his grandsons trying to set the record straight? <laughs> no, I'm just being a little like theoretical here. I, I think unintentionally, Krauss might have been the, the Zen master. I, th- I also think that when he would speak, like I think it was like right after that third title or the second title, I don't recall, but he, there's footage of him basically on the podium just waxing about the the virtue of the organization and from Jerry Reinsdorf on down. And like, it's like, dude, you're not doing anything without Michael Jordan. And every time you see a clip like that, it's just like, it's such a self-own. It's it's so embarrassing. My Lord. Yeah, that's an incredible clip that you're describing where like he says 12 words, and he, but five of them are organization. <laughs> it's like, this isn't even sentences. You're just saying the word organization over and over again. Um, it does feel pointed, even in that moment, you know, it feels pointed towards Jordan in a way, or at least Jordan would take it that way. Um, we have one other question here about the last dance quickly, and it comes in from Zach. He writes, watching the last dance has done a couple of things for me. It reminded me of how cool I thought MJ was during my awkward middle school years. And it also made me realize that there might have been a real talent dip in the 1990s. Who was the third best player during the meat of the nineties? Michael Jordan, Akeem, but then who else? Carl Malone, David Robinson, was Scottie Pippen the second best wing of the 1990s? What a bummer. Um, Michael, I ask this question now because we saw some just incredible play from Barkley in the run up to that 93, uh, you know, uh, finals, as we discussed in the last episode. Uh, you've got Hall of Famers like Patrick Ewing holding it down in the Eastern Conference. Carl uh, Malone and John Stockton are already up to their thing uh, in the West. I mean, the list goes on, you know, Pippen, as we, as we'll see when Jordan retires to play baseball, steps forward and is like third in MVP voting. Um, did you have the same takeaway about the quality of the league in the nineties as Zach, or do you want to push back? A little bit. Um, I think there were obviously a lot of great players. I think that this, the point of whether or not the league was a little bit diluted, particularly during the uh, second three-peat um, is a fair one, for sure. There's a lot of superstars who were about to enter the league um, who could have pushed Jordan a little bit. But, I mean, the guy, it, it's kind of like this unanswerable question of 
whether or not uh, he was just better than everybody else and that's just how it was going to be or whether or not the the competition around him wasn't on his level and could never reach him. Uh, There was this really interesting point that I read in a... uh, Old New Yorker article written by David Halberstram, who who wrote a book about Michael Jordan, and it's about Carl Malone in the '98 Finals and how the Bulls were never really afraid of Carl Malone because, particularly at the end of games, because um, he entered the league as someone who did not have the mindset of a scorer, and so they figured that when the going got tough, he would not. It would, he would kind of revert back to his old. Uh, like uh, original mentality as a basketball player, and it's like if that's your you're like how you feel about someone who's you know he's winning multiple MVPs, he's in the Hall of Fame, he's second all time in points, etc. Like if that's how you feel about your biggest competition, that's that's not like great. It's like it's like LeBron isn't thinking that about Kevin Durant or Steph Curry or James. Harden. Like you know what I mean? Like it's just. It's just different, and I, I don't want to take anything away from Jordan, but I think particularly when you compare it to the age that we're in right now, it's not even close, man. It's just, like, not. Yeah, I see a couple things going on. I mean, I think first, um, the talent today, like you're mentioning, is incredible, right? I mean, things have built up a lot in terms of the structure, both domestically and internationally for scouting and for development, so anything is going to look kind of it's going to pale in comparison to what we've got right now. I mean, it's it's pretty insane how many very very high level talented playmakers, scores, and shooters we have now compared to back then, and that's ultimately what we're going to be valuing from players. So when you're going back and saying, well, how many great NBA wings were there in the '90s? You know, players were just sort of the, the game was geared differently. Mm-hmm. Um, the big men were prized, and so you know, it's it's just apples to oranges on that front. But I think the expansion point is important to point out too. Like, you know, you have this situation where Larry and Magic retire and then Jordan retires basically back to back to back over a three-year stretch. So you're losing three iconic level players, right? And a few of those guys, their careers were cut short. I mean, Magic for obvious reasons. Um, and with Larry, I mean, you know, he could have played, you know, deeper into his 30s as well, except uh, injury, insu- uh, injury issues got him, right? So... That's a lot of talent to be taking off, like at, you know, simultaneously, and there just really wasn't anyone to fill that void. And then simultaneously, the NBA is adding a total of six teams in like a decade, right? So that's bound to kind of spread things out. It's bound to leave really good players with less help um, mm-hmm. and kind of you know strand them in the very good but not crazy elite category. And I think that's sort of what happened with Barkley. You know, a bunch of his teams, uh, he, his. You know, in Philly, he didn't have a ton of help, and then things kind of fell apart in Phoenix, and he was kind of drifting there a little bit with you know different supporting casts. Um, and then you know, same thing for the Jazz, where you know, they were really good for a long time, but they just could never quite get over the hump. Um, and you can blame their superstars, or you could blame uh, you know their lack of supporting cast kind of until you know in towards the end. You know, I actually think that the '90s were a pretty rich era in terms of how many you know first ballot level Hall of Famer type players there were. How many of those guys enjoyed really, really long and distinguished careers? I think a bunch of these players are overrated. David Robinson, Carl Malone, John Stockton, I think are all underrated by history. I look to the early 2000s as more of a desert from a talent perspective um, than 
even the 90s. Although I guess if you get into the late 90s, it's a little bit hard to distinguish. But, um, you know, to me, uh, I think the, the crush the 90s quality of play stuff is a little bit overblown. Well, yeah. I mean, when I say the early 2000s, I'm just thinking about like, what if you had, uh, you know, 23-year-old Kobe Bryant in the 1997 season you know what i mean and then there's like there's tim duncan there's kevin garnett there's dirk those guys kind of come along t-mac um jason kidd so like there's there's just a lot of different types of players who came along but like just comparing wings as you said it's like basically impossible when you go and you look at the uh kind of the all NBA teams from the nineties. There's just a lot of really weird names on there. And then I also really want to quickly shout out Grant Hill, who could have been uh, one of the better players from the nineties if injuries didn't kind of derail his career. Absolutely. And he was going to be the guy who took the torch from Jordan potentially. I mean, that was sort of the hype factor on him. I was looking at some of his like peak stats from the mid nineties early in his career. And they're like top 10 level advanced stats for the entire decade. So that's a big hit for the league, especially from a marketing perspective, because he was actually a guy who people were thinking like, hey, he could run for office, right? This guy could do it. Um, you know, the, the Duke pedigree and everything like that. So from a marketing standpoint, um, and also just an exciting game standpoint, um, you know, do a little bit of everything on the court. You know, he was one of those guys that uh, fell short, Penny Hardaway. And then in the late 90s, you got into some cautionary tales, you know, very highly ranked lottery picks who just flamed out. Um, had personal issues off the court, the money went to their heads, that kind of stuff that uh, also factored into sort of maybe the the talent dip as well. Um, I think that a major correction we've seen here over the last 20 years, but specifically the last 10 years, I mentioned the development of the scouting side of things, um, but it's also just the player conduct side of things. Guys are more professional. They take their jobs more seriously. They work out um, 12 months a year. They are less distracted by, uh, you know, the vices that, that, uh, you know, got to certain players during the 1990s. And I think that that really contributes to the depth of the current talent pool and the players deserve the credit for that. Um, first and foremost, after the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020 Bank of America Corporation. 
Okay, we have a question from Urim, and he writes, I love the show. If 20-year-old Drazen Petrovic, Arvidas Sabonis, Tony Kukoc, and Vlade Divac were available for the 2020 NBA draft, where would they be picked? Michael, I'm not you know, a self-proclaimed draft expert. Is it crazy to think that those four guys would be the first four picks? <laughs> That's exactly what I have written in my notes here. Like... Considering how receptive we are in 2020 to international prospects on the heels of Luka Doncic torching the league, uh, you combine that with just this current class that appears to be relatively uneventful. Um, sure, why not? Let's let's have all these guys at the top four. That would be awesome. Okay, so we're in agreement. Who's your first pick? If it's Petrovic, Sabonis, Kukoc, and Divac, and obviously we're going to say full health um, in, in the case of Petrovic, no tragic car accident. In the case of Sabonis, you know, good mm-hmm. knees. Um, I think I'm going Sabonis 1, Petrovic 2, Divac 3, Kukoc 4. What are you doing? I don't know how I would do it after Sabonis. I, I would It would take some time to debate that one. I think Sabonis is the clear number one pick, right? Like, even when he came over way past his prime he was still pretty effective on those trailblazers teams he's just like you could see the creativity and his imagination and uh there's just all these like folk tales about how dominant he was when he was healthy and in his 20s so he's like clearly the number one pick but then after that i'm not i'm not positive where i would go yeah so for for me sabonis is like an mvp caliber player Mm -hmm. right i mean he's on that level you could have seen it at a young age i mean unfortunately his best years are probably the late 80s when jordan's reigning supreme so he's probably falling into the same category of like guys who wind up getting underrated by history because they couldn't get past jordan right but he's also the type of player where when jordan goes to retirement maybe he's you know battling akeem for uh you know uh, top of the league i mean it's it's not out of the question if he's staying healthy i don't think petrovich ever had mvp potential um, Divac was a pretty darn good NBA player for a long time, uh, and had a pretty distinguished career, uh, with Kukoc. That's tricky because, um, you know, he does get it. We never really saw him as the lead dog in Chicago. And I think it's, I mean, overseas, he was the lead guy of the entire continent. So it's possible maybe he could run his own team as, as the face of it. And you can make a case that he should be over Divac because, you know, Divac was never really like, the centerpiece of an organization, um, although he was really good, like I mentioned. But to me, I think Petrovic is one of the biggest what ifs. I mean, that guy could absolutely mm-hmm. ball. One of the most entertaining scores you'll ever see. Natural shooting stroke, fearless, um, and you know he also had a way of capturing people's hearts and minds too, which goes a long way. I mean, I think he could have legit, you know, legitimately been a franchise type guard um, throughout his prime, just because people are going to want to go pay to see him. For sure. I totally agree with all that. Um, Vladi is really interesting just because the way we view him now from the job he's done with the Sacramento Kings in that front office, uh, all the flopping, the fact that he was traded for Kobe Bryant, the 13th overall pick way back in the day, um, kind of just underrates his ability as a player and his pure skill. Uh, But but yeah, I, I it's a bonus, and then I don't really know where I'm going. I will say the the, the Tony Kukoc footage from the Dream Team era in that, in those Olympics was kind of 
like it was awesome but like when he was playing well in that second the title game it was really cool to see him and then you know they would flash to him doing the interviews and (laughs) i wish we got more tony kukoc in the doc i'm not gonna lie I loved his interview where he was like, these guys didn't know me. They had no reason to not like me. (laughs) And he's just like, so like just over this idea that his teammates were kind of ganging up on him. And he was just like, you know, basically wanted to call them bad leaders without calling them bad leaders. Um, Did Kukoc, young Kukoc remind you of Lamar Odom a little bit? Did you see any of that coming through in the, uh, in the, in the highlights? I mean, just that big frame, the lefty, you know, making these cross-court passes to guys, you know, angles that no one else was really seeing and yet still being a scoring threat himself. Um, That's who I was thinking of when I was watching some of those highlights. Yeah, the smooth southpaw for sure. Uh, I could watch highlights of Tony Kukoc forever. Um, He's just such a fun player to watch. But yeah, I was getting like a total kick out of just, the venom that was spewing from Scotty and and Michael oh, Jordan. It's Michael, like, it's it hilarious. I know, man. Like, I always thought that was overplayed a little bit when I would read about it in books. And it's like, okay, sure, sure. You know, this is just like manufactured drama. And then you're watching a post-game <laughs> interview where Scotty's like, look, if he can't handle this, he can't handle the NBA. And basically just telling Kukoc, like, don't even bother coming over when Krause is spending <laughs> yes. like three years of his life trying to recruit Kukoc. That was crazy. And then, like, having it be such an open secret where guys like Barkley and Carl Malone are giving interviews and, like, yeah, guys, like, you're going to want to watch the game tonight because these guys are about to punk Tony <laughs> Kukoc, <laughs> you know? Or, like, Barkley coming on and saying, if anyone needs to get paid, it's Scotty. I mean, I loved how frank uh, talking these players were, you know? I mean, some of these interviews, they're just throwing daggers. They weren't afraid at all. No, No politically correct stuff whatsoever. I really enjoyed it. Hey, Michael, we're going to shift gears, though, because we got some more questions to get to from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And guys, keep those questions coming. We're getting so many good ones here during the quarantine period, and we appreciate it. Michael, I've been sitting on this question for, I don't even know, two weeks, um, but it came in from Brooks. He writes, I'm so glad you two have kept the pot up during these tough times. I'm a huge fan of the Memphis Grizzlies. John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. are a great young duo that complement each other very well. I was wondering, what are the best duos in the league where both players are under 25 years of age? So we're not doing 25 and under, Michael. We're doing under 25. Do you have a top five list? Um, Are Ja and Jaron on that list? I mean, I agree with Brooks. It's a phenomenal young duo. It's one that gets me salivating more than almost any other around the league. But I don't think it's number one, right? Uh, give me your number one duo right now. Can we start and can we go backwards from the f- five, four, three, two, one? Maybe that'll be well, a little sh- more entertaining for the. Oh, sure. The so you're this is a David Letterman bit, or what are you trying to do here? One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially because I think my number five is gonna like make steam come out of your ears. Uh-oh. But, Uh-oh. but <laughs> can I guess it right off the top? You of course can. Is it the Valley Boys? It <laughs> is it the Phoenix it Suns Valley it Boys? Is. So is. did you yes. go with um, Booker and Ubre um, or <laughs> or Booker and Aiton? Who'd you go for? Uh, it was uh, Mikael Bridges and uh, now I went with Devin Booker and DeAndre Aiton and only at five, Michael. I know you love these guys. You you really only had them at five. 
There's some stiff competition. Uh, I wanted to include them because it's like if Aiton progresses on the defensive end, like we saw from him, what we saw from this season, I just they could even go up a couple spots from where they are. I, I think their ceiling is super high. They're complementary pieces. Booker became an All Star this year. Who should have been? He should not have been an injury replacement. He should have been on the team from the start. Uh, and they're super young, and they don't have a lot of minutes together. I just think the there's a lot the the ceiling's just extremely high for these two. And it's not to say that they don't have flaws because they they do very much so. But when they are in their primes, I I, I just think they'll be an absolute monster. So they'll probably qu- uh, crack the top 12 of the West when they're in their prime? <laughs> w- what are we talking about with ceiling? Ninth seed? I can't wait for, like, you're just going <laughs> to eat all this. You are. It's going to happen someday well, soon. Remember, I lost my mind on DeAndre Ayton back in December. Mm-hmm. And yep. coincidentally, his whole season turned around right after my nine-minute speech here on this podcast. So I'm taking all the credit for it. I'm letting them use me as fuel I'm like Mike Francesa when he he said that Jordan wasn't committed enough to winning because he was golfing. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> that clip did not hold up very well after 25 years. No. Um, so this podcast from my side probably won't hold up so well. They weren't on my list, Michael. I had a really t- uh, tough time with the fifth spot. I'm going to give you a couple of the guys I considered, okay? Okay. Um Carl Anthony Towns and Malik Beasley. And I know people <laughs> might say D'Angelo Russell, that's fine too. In terms of who played better down the stretch, it was Beasley. People know I don't really like Russell. I think you have to take Towns and either one of those guys over Booker and Aiton because Towns is the best of those four players. Um, I I want him and a solid number two guy over the question marks that Booker and uh, Aiton present. What do you think? I I love and adore you for actually making the – uh, Beasley Russell debate, just like putting that on the pod. I, I just think that that was a genius move by you. Um, can't believe you did it, but I will well, say, I mean, come on. If we're talking about the two guys who aren't really all stars <laughs> in the NBA, it's D'Angelo Russell and Devin Booker. I mean, come on. Those are the two. Oh Jesus. Um, I think that the reason why I have Aiden over Towns, like I Towns offensively, it's all there, the whole package. I, I think I might just be a little stale and a little down on his ability to be the defensive anchor who I thought he was going to be when he was a rookie and he was switching out onto Steph Curry and shuffling his feet and moving around. I, I, we, you know, we haven't really seen him develop too much on that side of the ball, and that's been really disappointing. Um, so I, I just don't know how much further he's going to go in that area. And that is so important, especially in today's league. Whereas with Aiton, like from his career debut up until his last game this season, like the strides he's made as a defender, as a rebounder, as a communicator have been immense. So that's kind of why I'm, I'm kind of tipping the scales in, in his direction. Very, very interesting. All right, we're going to run through a couple other candidates. Trey Young and John Collins. I'm still not over John Collins' uh, you know, personal affront to the entire league by testing positive <laughs> right off the start of the season. So I had to leave him off for character reasons. Um, obviously, Trey Young, super, super high ceiling. But I think he's getting too much love on the internet, Michael. I think people are going too crazy with the all-star starter stuff. I mean, the mm. defense is just a train wreck. Atlanta was not good this year. He was part of the problem. 
um, on that end. Uh, a sneaky one. What about Ben Simmons and Matisse Thybul, right? I mean, there's not a lot of other young talent on Philly to pair with Simmons, uh, just because Embiid's kind of out of this question because of age. But Simmons, I still think when you're comparing him to some of these other guys, like I think that his long-term ceiling is higher than Booker um, and higher than Aiton still, even despite all of his flaws. And he's still really young. So that would be you know his argument for being in this category. And you've got some other maybe like less sexy combos like a DeMontis Sabonis and a Miles Turner or a Jonathan Isaac or an Aaron Gordon uh, down in Orlando. Do any of those make you reconsider the Valley Boys? No, they don't. I love Jonathan Isaac. I I also think that if you're going to have like Simmons and Thibault, then let's just throw in Terry Rogier and Devontae Graham while we're at it. Like, what is what is even the purpose of this exercise? But oh, uh, come on. But <laughs> but but no, I, I'm I'm ready to like continue on with the like who who is your top? Like, let's let's go okay, through the so actual here, list now. Yeah, number five, De'Aaron Fox, Marvin Bagley. Um, I guess I just trust the Sacramento Kings duo a little bit more than the Phoenix duo, in part because I've watched Devin Booker. Uh, for years and years and years struggle from some of the same issues. I think that it's easier to build and construct uh, functional lineups if your lead scorer, lead playmaker is a point guard as opposed to more of a two in in Booker situation. I think you can kind of load up with three and D guys around Fox and have a pretty nice blueprint. Um, I think Aiden at this point is ahead of Bagley uh, for some of the reasons that you're describing. But, you know, as you mentioned on the last episode, Bagley's still got all-star potential. So, um, you know, <laughs> you, you, but you disagreed with me on it. <laughs> no, I know, but it's still possible. I'm not writing it off, you sure, know, sure, and, yeah. I, and I am lower on Bagley than I'd like, uh, you know, in, in general, um, uh, compared to most people. Um, but I do, I think most of this boils down to, I have greater trust and faith in Fox who's younger than Booker to be a mm-hmm. better team player and, and to lead a more functional team, uh, during his prime. Okay. Uh, than I do with uh, you know, the Phoenix guys. No, that's fair. Uh, what what do you hate more, Ben? Uh, the smell of eggs in the morning or DeAndre Ayton? No, it's not hate for DeAndre Ayton, and I'm I'm glad to see him make <laughs> progress. Look, bottom uh-huh. line is he, he let his entire organization down, and everybody wants to be so forgiving in this society. Everybody wants to pat everybody on the back and pat them on the shoulder. Hey, it's going to be all right. You're a number one pick, okay? You should be making progress on the defensive end. You're very young. That's your job. You're getting paid a lot of money on the rookie contract to do it. You came in with big expectations. You're not Luka Doncic. You need to be stepping forward and doing some of these things. And I just hear so much hype from this organization about their young guys, and they never make any progress in the standings. Year after year after year, it's the same thing. I need to see some wins. That's it. And I think Sacramento raised themselves up into a certain respectability standard here uh, in the last couple of years. And I want to give them credit for that. Uh, it's not that Bagley drove it. It's actually that Fox is, is driving a lot of it. And I think when he came back down the stretch this season, he was playing some pretty impressive basketball. Okay. Well, for number four, I'm going with Ja and Triple J. And it's like, this is not a controversial pick at all. Well, that's also my answer, unfortunately. Okay. (laughs) Why do we agree on this one, Michael? Why are they there? Well, I mean, okay, we'll start with Triple J. I mean, he's a two-way big, shoots threes, protects the rim. He's like built in a lab. 
for 2020 and beyond basketball. And then you pair him with this Stefan Marbury crossed with Steve Francis 2.0 throwback point guard. And it's just everything that you love to see. I mean, there's really like, I have no complaints about these two. Yeah. For me, it's all about Ja. you know, super, super high ceiling. Uh, I mean, I love Jaron too. Everybody knows that, but yeah. in terms of like, who is going to be powering the Grizzlies to potentially winning titles? Like it's going to be the guy who has the ball in his hands. It's a guy who has great feel in the half court pick and roll situations, great vision, unselfish, but also has that takeover kind of killer mentality, uh, superstar level charisma, fearlessness. Uh, the biggest questions I think is his body. Mm-hmm. Can he withstand the pounding? I think that's a, a completely fair question to ask. He's very thin. Um, and I don't know how much more weight he's going to be putting on. Um, you know, we see similar point guards just miss time. You know, it happens. And he, and he missed a little bit during his rookie year. Uh, in terms of Jaron, people know foul trouble, you know, staying on the court is his biggest issue. Um, but he made a lot of progress uh, in year two, as you would expect. And I also think, you know, the, the biggest thing about these two guys is they both are just obsessed with the game. You know, Jaron grew up with it because of his dad. It's kind of all he's ever known. Jaws, you know, as a late bloomer, has kind of had to work for it every step of the way, small school guy and everything else. Um, there's no distractions. I don't think these guys are going to be getting positive drug tests like your favorite player, DeAndre Ayton. I don't think that they're going to be getting pulled over in the Arizona desert with one of the Jenner sisters like Devin Booker. Like, it's just basketball only for these guys. That's what they care about. <laughs> and, um, and so for that standpoint, I'm right there with you. I thought long and hard about bumping them up to number three based on Jaws' incredibly high ceiling and the, and the excellent fit with, uh, with Jaron, but I just couldn't quite do it. Who's your number three? I think three, well, I think the top three is you're kind of parsing here and it's personal preference. My number three is Porzingis and Luka Doncic. And well, let me ask you real quick. When we're doing this, sure. is this for like the rest of their careers or is this for right now? I kind of combine both. Like I'm, pro- I'm, I'm looking at what they've done together and then just projecting it forward. Um, so, like, Porzingis's injury history, I, 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 I got to factor that in here, and that's kind of what separated them, this duo from the the top two for me. Uh, you know, I think Luca is just unimpeachable. He's an incredible player. I love the reports about people who work in the NBA in front offices or scouts or whoever that think that he's like already reached his ceiling and there's nowhere else for him to go. It's like, what, I just, what, how are these people employed? I don't understand. Um, I think that the Luca KP pick and roll, when that gets going, it'll be an absolute nightmare because you've got KP who can just pop to like 30 feet and just drill shots uncontested. And he's got this high release. Um, I think they make so much sense together on the offensive end. And then defensively, like, Porzingis' rim protection is pretty awesome, and I think he's even an underrated defender. Uh, Watching them both on that side of the ball, though, in a playoff series, I think will be very interesting, particularly Luka, and we'll see how teams attack him or if they even try to or what the strategy is there, but that's kind of what I'm I'm thinking about when I look at these two. I actually had Luka and Porzingis as my number one. And my mm. argument is basically Luca at his age is already leading the best offense in the NBA and one of the highest efficiency offenses mm-hmm. in league history. Um, he is going to get better. Those executives are either trolling or just flat wrong. 
he is such an easy player to fit, you know, had to, to construct lineups around um, because he's a great passer and he's unselfish, mm-hmm. but he can also, you know, create for himself and draw a lot of attention. So you can just kind of pencil that in. And he's also an established right now MVP candidate. And guys who are MVP candidates at his age tend to be freaking awesome when they're in their late 20s, right? So I just think that he has, of all the players we're about to describe, he, to me, has the, easily the highest ceiling. And I think Porzingis is good. Like, I, I'm not saying I love him necessarily, but I'm, I'm making this pick solely on the basis of uh, Luca's potential and how it translates to team success. Um, he's also leading a winner already, which is very mm-hmm. important to me. It's not that there's some other veteran who he's kind of like coasting on uh, or, you know, somebody else who has that leadership role. Like he stepped in as the man in Dallas. He's the guy. You know, you go to their games there. Everyone's wearing his jersey. His picture's on everything. He has the ball in his hands, you know, the last possession every single night. That's how they run things. And he's delivering already, you know, winning record, playoff position, all of it. So to me, Luka and KP are number one. Who did you have? uh, If they were your number three, though, um, I had Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown at number three. Where'd you have those two guys? Uh, That's my number one. Uh, do you want to talk about, do you want to talk about them right now? Michael, if they were the Indiana Celtics, would you still have them number one or is this a Boston? I, w- thing? I, I would, I would have them number one because I look at what is happening in basketball. I see that they are the best young wing tandem in the league and I'm not even sure who's at second. Uh, they're probably in second themselves and third and fourth. Um, they're already all-star caliber. One of them will probably be considered for MVPs throughout his prime uh, and could, I I don't want to say easily because none of it's easy, but could easily win multiple scoring titles. He just has the skill set. I don't know if he'll be in a system that allows it. But um, these two are where basketball is. They are where basketball is going. They complement one another so well on both sides of the ball. There's really no discernible weakness that I see. Maybe you could say, uh, both of their ability, their combined ability to kind of play make and make others around them better. But we saw growth from both of them this season in that department. So, like, I just don't have any concerns about them. And I think that it, maybe it's my brain just watching Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. But if you have two attack dogs on the defensive end who can then create buckets on the other side, like, you're just set up. And I do not mean to compare. Tatum and Jalen. I'm surprised that you didn't just end this conversation. Maybe you did. Are you still are you still there? I'm here. I sometimes <laughs> I just let you kind of hang yourself. I mean, okay. come on, bro. Come on. Don't do this. Don't do the Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen thing. No, I hear you on the value of the wings, though. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have two of them and if they're able to balance, right? And I do think that – do we see a pecking order kind of develop this year? I felt like we did, right? Oh, yeah, didn't, 100%. Tatum established himself like I'm the lead guy, right? Especially when Kemba was yeah. out. And Jalen seems okay in, the, in that uh, auxiliary role, right? And I think mm-hmm. it probably helped that he got paid before the season. I think in hindsight, that wound up being a, a great decision by Danny Ainge. I'm going to give him full credit for that. Um, what's enticing about these guys is that they're ready to win right now, and they're ready to win for a long time together. Um, but to me, I still saw one other group that was above them, and that would be Zion Williamson, and Brandon Ingram. Now, these guys, they don't have the same clean fit that Boston's guys have, right? Mm-hmm. They haven't necessarily established themselves as like this reliable winning duo. And Boston's guys have had that for a couple extra years of, of playing together. But this pick is mostly based on the obscene 
ceiling that Zion displayed in terms of plus minus and impact on the game and you know athleticism and all the stuff that we've been mm-hmm. gushing about for months uh, when he came back. I think ultimately Ingram is starting to grow into you know this year into kind of that alpha guy. But I think he's actually better suited as a number two guy. Um, and I think that it could take him a while to figure that out. Um, I think ultimately the leader of that franchise will be Zion from a personality standpoint, marketing standpoint, but he doesn't necessarily have to dominate the ball like crazy. So I think there's going to be enough room for both of them. And I think that it, it will actually be better for Ingram not to have to be the face of things um, because he still hasn't proven that he can lead a winning team by himself. Uh, I think that his skills, if he can just kind of be turned loose as a scorer who can make defenses pay for o- overloading on Zion, he's going to have a very long and productive you know, high-scoring average type of career. Um, and then I, I think that, uh, you know, Zion, the fun part is when you're building around him, the sky's the limit because he's such a unique talent. And, um, you know, you, you should be able to construct, you know, really good offenses around a player who gets that much attention, who's that devastating on the glass, who plays with such energy, and is who a t- who's a team-first guy. So I, I think that, you know, if I had to rank these guys in terms of who has MVP potential – Tatum and Zion as very, very close uh, to me. Um, but I think that ultimately, like, Zion has just a slightly higher ceiling at this point than Tatum, um, based largely on his athleticism. If you want to say that Tatum is a more bankable guy to reach that level because he's shown us more and because he has, you know, fewer injury concerns, um, you know, I, I'm definitely open to that argument. You know, picking between those two groups was very close. Um, but I do like Ingram. I like his ceiling longer term than Brown as well. So, uh, and then I know that you can argue that one back and forth. It's kind of like, you know, which which prototype mm-hmm. guy do you like better? Or where do you come down on that one? Yeah, I mean, everything you said about Zion and Ingram also applies to my number two, which is Mo Bamba and Markel Fultz. Uh, you really have these guys. One of them needs the ball. Whoa. I'm just kidding. Whoa, um, whoa, whoa, no, whoa. No, no. <laughs> now you're just trying to... Now you're just heat checking. Now you're out here shrugging like the security guard trying to throw me off. Like, no, like, I, yeah. Michael, come no. on. Like, there's part of this you have to argue in good faith because I'm over here taking this seriously, right? And you might give me an aneurysm with some of this stuff. Is that what you want? Want me just to no, fall I, out on the middle of an episode? <laughs> no, I, I agree with everything you said about Zion and Ingram, and that, that, that was my number two for this exercise. I love Ingram. I've loved him for a long time, most of his career. I mean, him already being an all-star who can shoot threes, draw fouls, create his own shot in the mid-range is just so valuable. And he has some, you know, he has room to grow, I think, as a playmaker and as a defender. And he'll get stronger, hopefully, and he'll fill out a little bit more. He's still super young. Uh, But yeah, just taking that player and knowing what you have there and then throwing in this like transcendent, unprecedented like hulk figure in zion it just makes them so scary going forward and what i love about zion as a complimentary piece uh to ingram is just like he's this typhoon who decimates like the unstructured unorganized areas of basketball that you don't really need to call plays for him to get him involved he's gonna attack loose balls he's gonna you know treat possessions like fire drills and once he figures out defense and once the the whoever is the coach of long-term coach of the Pelicans kind of gets him to uh, is comfortable playing him at the five, which I think is going to be his natural position, that is going to be very, very scary down in New Orleans. So, 
Yeah, I think Zion and Ingram. I think Zion and Ingram, Luca and KP, and Tatum and Jalen. Any of those guys, any of those those duos could be number one. It's just kind of what your preference is. No, great breakdown. I love how you fired Alvin Gentry halfway through that. That was nice. I, very yeah, slick I know. by I'm you. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're we're going to close up with a couple quick uh, uh, questions and responses here. Okay, Bruce writes. You know, I love me some Michael Pina, but did I hear him say that 2008 Kendrick Perkins was in the same <laughs> anything? As Dwight Howard, quite honestly, I'm shocked Ben didn't turn into Stephen A. Smith and walk out. Ben, I would like to support you. In case you feel bad about reading Michael the wave of hate mail that comes in clowning his rather ridiculous opinion about Kendrick Perkins, please consider this email a ringing endorsement that you should clown him to the full extent of the internet. This should be his Charles Barkley moment, the one that people continuously make fun of him for the rest of eternity. And, and I think this came up... Um, you know, on our last episode when we were, uh, you know, debating people who might fall off a cliff at various points and you were explaining how much you defended Dwight Howard. <laughs> and then you somehow spun that into an even larger defense of Kendrick Perkins. Michael, I just need a quick 20 second statement from you. Um, he wants me to just shame you. I'm feeling too nice for that today, although you are pushing my buttons. Um, yeah. Do you want to walk this back? Do you want to clarify? How, how do you want to approach this? Yeah. I have a. I want to clarify just a little bit. Um, what I kind of meant to say, which I obviously did not, was not that Kendrick Perkins was better than Dwight Howard from '08 to 2010, because I I'm a I'm a sane, rational person who watched basketball back then, and I know what I saw. And uh, Dwight Howard was like a perennial Defensive Player of the Year, uh, best center in the league, leading rebounder year after year after year. Um, who probably should have won MVP the following season. But what I meant to say more was that uh, Kendrick Perkins had no difficulty in uh, defending Dwight Howard during those battles from uh, 08 to 2010. You know, they it was kind of like a thing where uh, a lot of teams did not have an answer for Dwight, even in the post when uh, the in the post and the paint on the glass, like Kendrick Perkins was just an answer. And so that's more or less what I was trying to do is give credit to Perk for, you know, pre-torn uh, ACL version of him when he was just a really, really good defensive player and super valuable for the Celtics in those series against Orlando Magic. So that's just, uh, that's what I want to say there to kind of set the record straight. Okay, here's what I want to say to satisfy Bruce's desire for bloodlust. Sure. <laughs> Michael has become, you know how Kendrick Perkins will go on Twitter and defend LeBron James over everything, Bruce? I mean, it's it's getting to the point where it's like kind of incredible the lengths that he goes to, to stand for LeBron James. Michael has now become that for Kendrick Perkins. So it's, you know, it's, it's all a pecking order. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all like A, a to B, B to C. Uh, we could see these relationships developing during quarantine. And, uh, you know, it's it's frankly a little bit terrifying. On a brighter note, Mario emails, Hey, fellas, I appreciate you guys putting out content every week. I work as a mail carrier, and I listen to you guys while I'm out delivering top five pods, in my opinion. Mario, name four better. Mario, come on, really. Let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's up that standard a little bit. Uh, in all seriousness, I just wanted to say quickly, Thanks to all the mail carrier guys, Postmate delivery guys, everybody else who's out there grinding. I know you, you don't get as much attention as healthcare professionals during this time period, but I see you working. I appreciate it. I rush for the UPS truck every single day. Those guys are putting in really long hours. I see them around constantly. Um, and, you know, it's uh, an aspect of society. I just wanted to show 
a little bit of love to Mario. We thank you for your service and everybody else out there like you. On the last note, Peter from Poland writes, our old friend, he says, today was the first day of reducing some of the restrictions here in Poland that were applied in this country. That means I was able to go out and shoot some basketball hoops for the first time in six weeks. I don't have any takes. I just wanted to send out a message to the entire open floor community. Things will get better and we will soon have the game we all love so much back in our lives. In the meantime, stay strong and stay positive. Michael, I love that. What'd you think from Peter in Poland? Uh, terrific. And I want to echo what you said about um, all the support and love we have for essential workers in whatever field you are in and the risks that you take to just kind of make everything run as smoothly as possible during such a unsmooth time. So thank you to Peter. Thank you to Mario. Thank you to everyone who's been listening to us over the past couple of months. We appreciate it very much. And guys, keep the emails coming. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Let us know your top duos under 25. What do we get right? What do we get wrong? Do you want to defend your favorite player's honor? Also, let us know. Weigh in on the last dance. What other questions it is? Is it provoking for you? Um, and maybe for your loved ones who are watching it, if there are more casual fans, I'd love to hear that stuff too. I can't get enough, and we are rounding the home stretch on that. Only a couple more weeks, really, to discuss that project um, from ESPN. Michael, they can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say Rate and Review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. I'm on Instagram, at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter, at Ben.Golliver. Michael is on Instagram and Twitter, at Michael V as in Victor Pina. Hey, Michael, until next week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. Ben.